2: Welcome to the Bob France Authority. I am Khalid Namari for Bob France. It's for my second and last day on the mic. I am enjoying myself. Uh, love, I'm loving the studio. I'm loving uh, the staff here and the engineers here. I'm getting my, uh, I'm getting my education on what it's like to be on a big stage, uh, a bigger stage, uh, in radio. So, uh, good morning to you. Yesterday, uh, we had we had a little fun yesterday. Uh, we had some fantastic uh, interviews yesterday. And we've got another one today coming up around 935. We have Micah Derry, who's the state director for the How chapter of Americans for Prosperity. What we're going to talk about is the good economic news that's going on that's not really being reported. There's a lot of good economic news. We're going to talk about what FP does, Americans for Prosperity, what they do, what are their goals, and some of the, some of the good initiatives that they're working on that are – meant to benefit all Americans, not just a certain group but, but all Americans, particularly those who are trying to get ahead. So if you want to get in, um uh, to the Bob France Authority this morning with me, Khalid Namar, 281 one triple eight two eight one eleven hundred or two one six nine zero one zero would love to hear from you, we'll love to hear your thoughts. Um so anyway, um so t- tomorrow is I guess a big day in the Democratic Party. Um Joe Biden is supposed to be getting into the race which I don't know if any, anybody's excited about that. I'm not particularly. I don't know if the party really wants him. The party seems to uh, have this diversity play where they're trying to have all these different disparate groups run. You have, you know, your black females, you have your you know, women, you have black women, you have uh, a gay male running. You have, you know, but it seems to be they're relying on Joe Biden to save the day because Joe Biden is the only one that really has any name recognition. You're not going to get a mayor of South Bend, Indiana to actually make a dent in the race. Sorry. You know, he's, he might be a charming young man, but uh, you know in Beto, I think his race is pretty much dead in the water. So Biden's going to jump in the race. Biden has been um, speared as of late with some, in my opinion, some very uh, disgusting, uh, you know, charges of, of yeah, yeah, he might be a little handsy, he might be a little uh, little strange, but um, I don't think that that should have come out at this particular time considering he was a heartbeat way, away from the presidency for eight years. And if these women didn't have a problem with him being vice president, then, you know, what's, what's the difference? Now, I think it's sort of silly, but it'll be interesting because can you imagine a debate, potential debate between – Biden and Trump that would be uh, that would be pretty interesting that's like must see TV because if Trump's going to be Trump which I don't think he can be anything else he's going to go at Biden and make all kind of references to <laughs> to what's going on with Biden's uh, you know, ac- accusations and things so it's going to be a fun very fun entertaining political season as it tends to be in this country so We'll see what he has to say tomorrow, what he's going to run on. He's going to try to remind people of the quote, good old days with Barack Obama was president, because regardless of what actually happened during his administration, his fans are, are sort of longing to, uh, to see their king again. So he's going to try to piggyback and say, remember me. I was, you know, back when, uh, things were, were, were really wonderful in America. That's going to be Joe Biden's, uh, pitch. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not particularly buying it. So. We'll see what happens tomorrow with him. Then we're gonna. I'm gonna talk about uh, the streets of San Francisco, and there's something really uh, odd going on in the streets of San Francisco. They have they have some problems there. Besides a major housing crunch, they can't even provide housing for people. They have a large homeless population, as does Los Angeles. But you're gonna find out some really strange things something isn't right in the air in san francisco and i'll i'll, I'll fill you in on that but you know i talked a little about the border yesterday and i think people need to really pay attention to what's what's really happening we have a uh, we talk about judicial overreach and certainly presidential power has expanded a great deal over the last few decades partly due to congress but in this particular instance we have congressional overreach so congress didn't want to fund the border wall a few months ago because they talked about uh, it's tomorrow. They talked about uh, separation of powers when it came to Trump's declaration of a national emergency. But what's interesting about this Congress, if you look at the last last couple of years, if you if you really pay close attention, this president, according to this Congress, can't do anything. The executive branch does have authority as Congress has authority. But if you, if you pay attention, this president can't do anything. Let's take a look at some examples. When it came to the travel ban, which was rolled out in the first few months of the administration, which was very sloppily done. But nonetheless, it was rolled out and it was objections to it being unconstitutional, which we found out that wasn't true. Uh, the Supreme Court actually agreed to a modified version of it, but it went through. When it comes to rounding up illegals, sanctuary city mayors and sanctuary state governors saying you can't do that. When it comes to stopping migrants from coming by the thousands across the border. You can't do that either. When it comes to you know, deportations, well, you can't do that because this person has been here for 10 years working a job they haven't committed a crime you know you you, you can't do that there there are whines about deportations there are whines about the wall even though Congress passed a law the president uh, can't execute it because they won't fund it so you can't do that either they pass laws according to the Constitution the president is supposed to faithfully execute the laws of the United States but if Congress passes a law that they won't fund then the president can't execute it so it's That's another roadblock. So I'm wondering what will they agree to because they won't seem to agree to anything. The president, no matter who he is, has authority to protect the country, to stop people from flowing into the country. But this Congress is constantly getting in the way and there are reasons why they're doing this. And I won't get into that today, but you have to ask yourself if someone tells you they're for something, but everything you propose, they're against it. Then that tells you they're not being sincere. Right now, there's another large caravan of people coming uh, across the border, uh, which you know we hear more about that in the coming weeks. This is going to be a much much bigger issue as the campaign season goes on. But this is a very serious issue as to how much authority Congress is ex- is trying to exert on the executive branch. We know the executive branch has issues with with overreach. However, I think we need to pay attention to. All sorts of overreach, not just on the executive branch, uh, you know, it's going on right now. And I think that with all these investigations and, you know, Russia Gate and, and Spygate and everything else that's going on, people are a little bit distracted because it's all about the country and how we are going to proceed as a country. And I, for one, uh, know that many of these problems can be solved if politicians would pay attention to what's actually on the books to be enforced. They kind of ignore laws. Then they pass new laws only to not enforce those. So it's like they mistake activity for achievement. Well, as long as we're passing laws, we're accomplishing something. The heck with the fact they're not even enforcing laws. Bernie Madoff actually ripped off, you know, billions of dollars. There were laws on the books to stop Bernie Madoff from doing what he was doing. But what did Congress do? They passed new laws. Well, you didn't enforce the ones you had. So everybody thinks there's this legislative fix to everything. Well, a lot of times it's about them actually doing what they're paid to do or what they're elected to do. And they fool us by passing another layer, putting another layer of paint on the building and thinking that they've done something. One of my favorite statements were quotes from um, the John Wooden, the uh, late great UCLA coach used to give is that, you know, don't mistake activity for achievement. And that's exactly what happens a lot in Washington. Well, you know, Washington needs to do something. So everybody thinks that means legislation. No, not necessarily. There are plenty of laws on the books that they are just not enforcing because it's not in their interest to enforce. So we're going to get into that because we, we at AFP, uh, Mike Adari, and I, and I. Full disclosure: I've, I've done a lot of volunteer work with AFP, and we try to get people to focus on getting your politicians to actually work for you—is what they're supposed to do. They won't work for you unless you make them work. Unless you make them do what you elected them to do, they won't, they won't do it. I, for one, have done a lot of phone banking over the years, making phone calls to people, trying to get them to call their congressmen and senators to get them to act on things that are within their interest. One of the things we worked on is the uh, Veterans Accountability Act, which was going to reform the VA and make it easier to fire people at the VA. We had to, let people know, look, if you want this to happen, you, you better blow their phones up or else they won't pay attention. They'll let things uh, they'll let things slide. There was a funny scene in a in movie, Bullworth, which is funny because you look at Bullworth back in 92 starring uh, Warren Beatty about this very brutally honest, <laughs> unfiltered politician, which was sort of a precursor to Trump. And he spoke to a black church and he basically told them. Uh, when he was asked a question about a particular legislation that, well, you know, we let it die in committee when you weren't paying attention. <laughs> and it's like too much truth because that's actually what happens. Things die when you don't pay attention. And so while we're distracted with silliness, things are not getting done the way that they should get done. So this is what needs to happen. We need to focus on what we want uh, our elected officials to do, and we need to make them do it. Um, these investigations are taking people's attention uh, off the ball and I, that's why I kind of want them to and I do want people to, to be accountable uh, no doubt about that but I do think that we need to make people uh, make our politicians accountable particularly on a local level and state level uh, we get distracted what's going on in the circus in D.C. because that's more entertaining it's like the big tent circus but there's a lot of things locally that people need to pay attention to so a lot of things that uh you know, Americans for Prosperity does, uh, focus on the local and state level because that's, that's where, you know, all politics are local. Um, so we're going to definitely, uh, you know, cover that with Micah Derry in the, uh, 935 hour, you know, that and, and, and more. Um, the streets of San Francisco. San Francisco has a problem. Uh, like I said, besides a housing crunch, um, there is a major issue with comes to, and how can I put this delicately? Um, there is lots of, um, human feces in the streets of San Francisco. They have a map. They've mapped it out where all the feces are in the streets of San Francisco. And it is unbelievable. I don't know (laughs) if you've seen the story. Um, that is this is America. This is once a great American city that has so much poop in the streets. They need a map to tell you where it is. Now, that's not symbolic. <laughs> nothing is <laughs> nothing is. Andrew, have you have you have you heard about that? I'm, look, I'm talking to my, my engineer, Andrew.
0: No, I this is the first I'm hearing. About oh,
2: my. OK, so <laughs> um, they are calling it the great the great San Francisco poop crisis. the streets this they have this map because if people are biking or walking or driving you need to know where it is um and and they have to have to tell people this this is how bad san francisco's homeless problem is and street problem is so anyway we're gonna we're gonna i'm gonna delve more into that uh, on the next side of the break it's a short segment so you are listening to the bob france authority i'm khalid namar And we'll be right back on the other side to talk more about the streets of San Francisco.
0: Now heard through downtown through greater Cleveland on one oh two point five FM. It's the Bob France Authority.
2: Welcome back to the Bar France Authority. I am Khalid Namar. Um, before we left off, we were talking about the streets of San Francisco. So, so people who are my, you know, my age or older remember a TV show back in the 70s called The Streets of San Francisco. Um, well, that has a different meaning now. <laughs> let, me, let me read you this story, and, and it is unbelievable, um, about what's going on in San Francisco now. So the issue of human feces on the sidewalks, is no joke in the Bay Area. And it's and it's been at the forefront of local political discourse for months. Now, this is a story uh, about an investigation from uh, NBC Bay Area. In March, NBC Bay Area came out with an investigative report that found more than 300 piles of feces, which could have been human or animal, and 100 drug needles in the 153 blocks around the, the Tenderloin neighborhood. In the weeks leading up to the June special mayoral election, the three leading candidates each made homelessness and street cleanliness a central issue. Earlier this month, a major medical association canceled its conference in San Francisco, which would have generated $40 for the local economy due to the city's, quote, appalling street life. As the San Francisco Chronicles headline put it, less than two weeks later, an anonymous, quote, disgusted female san francisco resident took out a full page ad in the chronicle describing the trauma of seeing a homeless man in neiman marcus so san francisco in california you know los angeles in california they have amongst the largest homeless populations they're pretty they're, they're, they're amazingly large They're tent cities for miles you would think you're in haiti and this is a city that has not understood that you you can't continue to import more poor people into your state. How dare you label yourself a sanctuary state when you have these issues. And at the same time, I think governor Gavin Newsom was bragging about the state's budget surplus. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you have sh- filth on your streets like this, then you have a housing crisis in San Francisco, where if you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year in San Francisco, you still need a roommate. That's how, Tough it is to live in the city of San Francisco. The housing crisis is incredible. It's driving many people out of the city because they cannot afford to live there. So it's a city of very wealthy Silicon Valley, you know, types. And then there is the homeless population. So it's almost like there's no middle class in the city. And I think that this is just one example of a state which is values itself on how they Uh, taking immigrants and and people from other countries, but you can't afford to take care of the people that you have. If you have a large, very large homeless population and you have fit on your streets, you don't need to advertise yourself as a, uh, as a sanctuary state. Sorry, because people in your city, they need sanctuary from your poop on your, on your sidewalks. And, and pretty soon I think the money that's in California, which is, propping up their budget. I think 300 families uh, support a large percent of the, of the budget because, you know, all the, the, the wealth and Silicon Valley wealth and so forth in, in the state. You have a major problem. If these people decide to flee, if you keep having this kind of filth and poor quality of life in your, in your city, in your state, um, of course, California has a lot of wonderful advantages, but those advantages are being destroyed By the ridiculous policies of of some of their leaders like in oakland california where we had a mayor who tipped off the illegals to a pending raid so this is this is incredible but you can look up the california poop story at your own uh uh, convenience it's it's pretty incredible um Anyway, uh, coming up at 935, we're going to have Micah Derry of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation, and we're going to talk about some good economic news. I'm Khalid Namar. You're listening to the Bob France Authority. See you on the other side. The smell of- back live on the Bob France authority. I'm Khalid Namar. Uh, if you want to get in, get in at triple eight, two, eight, one, 281 1110 or two, one, six, nine, zero, one, zero, nine, four, five. So, um, we have, in spite of all of the, the, the circus acts going on right now in our country, in the media, we have some good economic news. We have things that are actually going on. There's work, there's opportunity here. And we're going to talk about that with someone that I know pretty well. Um, his name is Micah Derry. He is the State Director for Americans for Prosperity, the uh, the Ohio chapter. And Micah, there, how are you?
3: Hey, Khalid. Thank you so much for having me on this morning.
2: Excellent, excellent. Americans for Prosperity has been around quite a while. And full disclosure, i done a lot of volunteer work with, with AFP. Uh, tell our listeners who... Uh, AFP is and what AFP does.
3: Absolutely. Americans for Prosperity is a national organization with 35 state chapters, and and we exist for the purpose of, of recruiting, educating, and mobilizing people who believe in the benefits of a free and open society, that believe that a free people are capable of incredible things. And we exist to be able to address the barriers that keep people from achieving their American dream, whether those are internal barriers that uh, we see in forms, of maybe lack of education or or lack of opportunity within within their own limited scope, or if it's external barriers, and that's where we really focus uh, when it comes to government regulation or policies that may harm us as we try to live out our American dream.
2: Exactly, and and so the initiatives that. Uh AFP has pushed for in recent years have, have done pretty well. One of my favorites is the occupational licensing issue. Explain that to our listeners.
3: Absolutely. So, occupational licensing is an issue that I really didn't come onto a lot of people's radar until I probably the mid two thousands, and even then it was something that I, you know, your policy wonks would would talk about. Uh, around the proverbial water cooler, but it wasn't necessarily at the forefront of people's minds. And uh, it started getting more traction when uh, there it was discovered when the Trump administration came in that there was agreement between the Trump administration and the Obama administration uh, that occupational licensing was something that was becoming a, a barrier to the workforce. And for, for those who aren't familiar with the issue, an occupational license is when the state issues a license for a certain occupation. Now, some uh, examples of occupational licensing that it's probably a good thing, it's healthy to say, for example, to be a doctor, you have to have a a medical license from the state, you know, in in order to to be a nurse, you know, you have to have that. Um, But on the other hand, we have licenses for some things uh, that uh, it it creates that barrier that has to Make you stop and pause for those days. Is that something you really need a license for. For example, I one of my favorites is, uh, is a milk tester. <laughs> I, in order to, to test milk in, in Ohio, you have to have a license from the state. Um, to be an auctioneer, you have to have a license from the state. The one that's brand new that the legislature passed last year in the 11th hour during link duck session in December uh, was a home inspector license. Um, and, and what's amazing about this is the requirements they put into it. In order to get a license, you have to check certain boxes. And, and I'll, I'll use the example of the home inspector license. Uh, in that, uh, you cannot have um, a, a felony in your background which bear in mind we're not talking about home invasion even we're talking about if you were if you say you have an f5 felony for um, for say marijuana possession as a teenager uh, that can prohibit you from being able to be a home inspector no matter how well you might know uh, in construction and, and home safety uh, you are not able to to be a home inspector Also you have to have a high school diploma. According to the law, in order to receive that license, now something that uh, I, I got to put out there is uh, I'm actually not a high school graduate myself. I don't have a GED. I've committed myself to be a lifelong learner, I, and I'm, I'm very blessed to be surrounded by people that are smarter than me. I get to learn from them. But by the law, I would not be allowed to be a home inspector uh, because of the provisions of the law. And so as the as People on both sides of the aisle have recognized that this is a barrier to the workforce, especially as, you know, we, we now have more job opportunities than we do available workers in in the U.S. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But as people begin to realize that we have to tear down those barriers so we can get the last, the last available workforce into the workforce so they can be productive members of society, we have to tear down the artificial barriers and really assess why did we create these in the first place? And do they still serve a purpose?
2: Yeah. And speaking of occupational licensing is how ridiculous it is. But but first I want to say I did not know you did not have a GED because I've heard you speak on a few occasions. And I would certainly listen to your views on economic policy more than I would listen to some of these eggheads on, 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 on television. So <laughs> I did not know that. And, and I, that makes me even more impressed with you. Um, but I'll, I'll say this. One of my favorite occupational licensing uh, stories is the one I, th- I think it would stay, It may be Florida where you need a license to be a, a shampoo person in the, in a salon. Uh, and
3: that is correct. Yeah, and that's in Ohio as well. <laughs> wow, shampoo. I'll, I'll give you an example. Well, I'll give you an example on the cosmetology front because this is actually something that. Uh, We've been working on uh, AFP for a while here in Ohio, and I'm I'm optimistic we'll see progress at this General Assembly, and that is in relation uh, to cosmetology. Uh, In Ohio, in order to be a cosmetologist, uh, you have to have 1,500 hours of training if you go to a private school uh, in order to get that license. Now if you go through public school and you go to a trade school uh, as part of your high school education. You only have to get a little over 1,100 hours of, of training in, and the rest of the 400 and odd number of hours is uh, your, your more core curriculum, your, your English, your sciences, you know you, what you have to do to finish high school. So in Ohio, though, I, you know, we've, we have traveled the state talking to salon owners and salon managers, and they talk about how there's no difference in the quality of cosmetologist that comes out of a private school versus a public school. And, and this is what's absolutely amazing, though, it, because of how we have set up the, uh, the restrictions of that cosmetology license, someone who, say, is going to work in a, um, and I'll, I'll avoid using brand names here, but saying that in a, in a uh, shop that cuts men's hair almost exclusively, I, what you need to know to cut a man's hair is not the same as what you need to know to do, say, hair coloring or to do nails. Uh, you want to you have to know things about dermatology, but... By Ohio's licensing standards, you have to know all of that. And recently, uh, in Cleed, in, uh, I know you know this. Your listeners probably don't. Uh, I am a bald man. I, I started going bald <laughs> when when I was in my early twenties, and I began shaving my head when I was twenty five, and I, I never looked back. Uh, Dollar Shave Club has been my best friend in keeping <laughs> my my hair shiny. But uh, I do occasionally indulge in a beard trim because I've discovered that, especially if I have a slightly longer beard, that I'm able to to cut that up pretty badly. And I went in for a beard trim and met this wonderful young woman, uh, Dina. And Dina was telling me about how she was originally from Ohio. She had moved away to Chicago when she was in her early 20s, chasing some dreams. She went to a great, prestigious cosmetology school in in Chicago, and she did that for seven years, cutting men's hair. Well, she had the opportunity to come back to Ohio. She moved back to Ohio to help take care of her parents who were aging. And when she did that, she was not able to work as a cosmetologist in Ohio because her license wasn't recognized here. And so she had to go back and sit for her board's exam all over again. Now, these, everything that was on the exam, those were things that she had known seven years before, but seven years of cutting exclusively men's hair, she did not remember a lot of things about nail care, about dermatology, about coloring uh, hair, uh, a lot of things that are very unique to, to other aspects of salon treatment, and she failed her board, so she was out that money. She wasn't able to sit for it again. She had to study. And as a result, she spent uh, almost a year working in retail, making considerably less money than what she would have been able to make, doing what she'd already been doing for seven years. And we talked about wanting to make Ohio a place that's open for business, that is good for the workforce. We have to fix our laws so that we're not encouraging people to either move away or stay away. And I'm really excited. We're, we're looking at some legislation. It, it, it made great progress last year. Assembly. We're optimistic it'll pass this year. Uh, Senator Christina Rogner, out of uh, Summit County, is sponsoring the legislation. It would reduce the training levels and uh, it, it would reduce it to a thousand hours, uh, which mm. other states have already done. Okay. Uh, my, New York has yeah. already done it.
2: So and hold, others, yeah. So hold that thought. So we're going to have a break here. We're going to come back on the other side and talk more about. Some of the things that governments do to prevent people from prospering. All right. We're with Mike Derry, State Director of Americans for Prosperity. I'm Khalid Namar. You're listening to the Bob France Authority. We'll be right back.
0: It's the Bob France Authority here on AM 1420. The answer.
2: We are back on the Bio France Authority. I'm Kylie Namara, and we have been talking to Micah Derry, the State Director for Americans for Prosperity, talking to us about all the what AFP does and the good economic news. Mike, are you there? Oh, let me get you. Okay, there he is. How are you doing, Mike? Are you there?
3: I am doing well, thanks. Uh, good to be back with you.
2: Excellent. So it, it, talking about what the state is, does and what the regulatory state does and don't get me started on that i'm sure you and i could go on for a long time about that because it's something that afp specializes in when when we have these talks uh the government in many cases particularly the state is the number one restrictor of prosperity for many people um there's a story that came out in 2017 from gardendale alabama which sort of got my blood boiling and anyone who's ever done anything as a teenager and kind of work should have should have gotten them equally as as upset. There was a young woman who was trying to cut grass for twenty dollars a pop or twenty, thirty bucks. Someone reported her from another lawn service and, you know, for cutting grass without a license. Hundred and ten dollar license. It was going to cost her to cut grass. So it, it defeats the whole purpose of a young person trying to be entrepreneurial and industrious, say, in the summer to make money when you have to pay one hundred and ten bucks for a license. What is the point? And that's what the state regulatory state does, um, and that's some of the things we were just talking about with occupational licensing. One of the things that AFP was involved in, uh, and I think it was in Nebraska and other states, was was the hair braiding license. Talk about that.
3: Yes, so uh, there has been a recognition across the country in a number of states, and um, you know, I think one of the first ones to really capitalize how egregious this particular issue was uh, was it was actually in Tennessee, I know Mississippi was certainly at the forefront uh, as well it was this realization that in order to be a professional hair braider uh, you know for, for someone that that uh, that braids hair and is paid for it uh, that they had to have a full blown cosmetology license and this is the case in in most of the country um, and you know it's also it 's still the case here, here in Ohio um, and the, and, and going back to our earlier conversation, we're talking about 1500 hours of training on all kinds of issues that are not even directly related to hair braiding. And, and why that's a, a barrier is because of the cost, the sheer cost of obtaining that training in the first place. And, and, again, to do something that, for many, they've been doing all of their lives, it's something they learned from their mothers, from their sisters. Uh, and, but to be able to make money doing it, they had to go through that full cosmetology license, had to take the cosmetology board exam, and had to obtain the license from the state. And so uh, even in, in Ohio, we still have, unfortunately, incredibly high uh, restrictions on being able to braid hair. It's one of the things that we need to be able to address. But this is what's amazing about occupational licenses. You know, I frequently hear from senators and members of the House of Representatives, but the industry is asking for it. And we heard this with the home inspectors last year. Uh, we, we've heard it in the past about food trucks. We've heard it uh, about roofers. And to a certain extent, they are right. There are two main entities, whatever, a new occupational license is coming forward that is asking for it. One is the trade associations that represent that industry, because part of almost every single license is a continuing education requirement. That someone who has that license in order to keep the license, they have to take certain number of hours of classes every year. And that's whether you are, uh, you know, whether you are an HVAC contractor, an attorney, or a CPA. You have to take a certain number of classes every single year in order to keep that license up. Guess who provides those classes? <laughs> the trade association, Absolutely. and so for them, it's a guaranteed revenue stream. Yeah. By law, also the other, the second entity that advocates for these licenses are the well-established uh, individuals or companies that are within that industry, because either a they are grandfathered into the license, or they are they're structured in such a way that they can handle that kind of cost. They can absorb it. They don't have the startup cost that, that a new entrant into that industry, into that marketplace has. And so for them, it dampens down the competition. The Economist had a great story on this, uh, last year, actually, in talking about when you create a new license, uh, for an industry that was not previously, uh, licensed, you end up with a dampening effect and the workforce of that, uh, that newly licensed occupation actually ages and they have more difficulty in recruiting new members into that industry which in the short term raises the wages of, of the of uh, those that are already in it but in the long term actually creates detrimental damage for that industry
2: yeah and so in, in the you know little time we have left uh, talk real quickly about the prevailing wage issue in the state of Ohio
3: certainly. So the prevailing wage, uh, for those who are not familiar with it, is rooted in legislation back in the, in the 1930s. It was passed at the federal and at the state level. The purpose of prevailing wage, uh, according to the bill sponsors of the Davis-Bacon Act in D.C., was to prevent uh, people of color that were moving north from the south from taking local, in their words, white jobs. And what was happening was, as with the onset of the Depression, uh, people were migrating north looking for work, and they were taking what work they could And They were often bidding much lower on labor rate than what, what local uh, contract labor was doing. And so the law was meant to keep to set a standard rate of what labor costs would be. That way, any bidding negotiation was going to happen around materials and overhead and all that. And again, for in the words of the sponsors, to protect those white jobs. So that was back in the 1930s, and since then it has evolved considerably. I uh, but the principle is still the same. It's on state contracts or, or local government contracts, any any uh, new construction that's over two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars you have to pay what's known as prevailing wage. And the cost of that, and we're not just talking about what you're paying the labor, you're also talking about a lot of paperwork and regulation that accompanies that, so it makes it more expensive for for the business to be able to conduct it as well. I actually used to work in masonry, and we were a small company. Uh, We only had about a dozen employees, and we ended up getting out of prevailing wage work altogether because of the administrative burden that accompanied it. Uh, it wasn't because of what we paid our employees. In fact, the wages were rather very similar to what we paid our employees. But the administrative burden was too much, and we didn't want to have to hire additional office staff. So we got out of it altogether. It raises the cost of projects uh, somewhere in the vicinity between 10 and 20%. In some rural parts of the state, it raises it by even more than that because the the rates it's set at, it's more than the cost
2: of living. Okay. So, you know, thank you, Micah, Micah Derry, the state director for the Ohio chapter of America for Prosperity. I'll leave you the words real quickly. The, you know, remember George McGovern, who famously got his tail kicked in 1984 presidential uh, campaign from uh, South Dakota. He ran a bed and breakfast after he left politics and he wrote a famous op-ed in Forbes and said, you know, had I known all the regulations red tape business owners had to deal with, I would have been a better politician. So that says a lot right there about what our lawmakers and what little they know about what the average American goes through. Micah, thank you so much. Uh, we'll definitely we will talk again uh, about these issues and I'll continue to do what I can